Hi everyone and welcome to this episode of the podcast in partnership with Najahi Events. Much more about them later. Let's get into today's guest. Let's go through this from the top, okay? Because I think you'll like her. You probably know her. If you don't know her, then you will soon after. She's a TV personality, a producer, an entrepreneur, a mum known as the fabulous mum. She's got many successes, including her latest project, Conversations with Wives, bringing women together to discuss sisterhood and marriage. She's the founder of the non-profit Mums and Dads who fundraise to raise money for schools in and different communities. Despite her amazing success with these projects, she's here to discuss a very important topic that's close to my heart. She's been doing some incredible work to stop human trafficking. She's the first ever celebrity ambassador of the Wellspring Living, a group that helps domestic minor sex trafficking victims to come forward and regain confidence. She also founded the Stop Trafficking Mission Funding, where 100% of the proceeds go to verified organizations actively aiding victims affected by human trafficking. Her work and dedication to spreading awareness about this issue is commendable. Today, she'll be speaking to us about the work she does, the importance of awareness, and how all of us can take steps to stop human trafficking that's happening right under our nose. Please give a warm welcome to the show to Carla Stevens. Well, Carla, thank you so much for coming to join us on the show today. Uh, another important subject, but to be honest with you, I'm sitting talking to a TV celebrity, so I'm pretty sure, okay, this is going to be easy peasy, lemon squeezy for you to be able to share and talk with us, make sure that the audience enjoys themselves. But some of them over here in other parts of the world, like the Middle East, where we are, and in the UK, may not have heard of you. Now, that might be a bit unusual for a TV celebrity like you, so why don't, why don't we do something grand and give you an official welcome to the show and ask you to come and introduce yourself to us. Okay, well, thank you. I already feel quite grand with that introduction. And, you know, honestly, those of you who do not know who I am, that's, I, I really hate that, but I'm going to introduce myself to you. First of all, I like to say, uh, I'm known as the fabulous over the top helicopter mom. I like that def definition because I think everyone can identify with being a parent. I am just a supersized parent. In fact, I got on television because I'm so supersized in my parenting, right? Mm -hmm. But I'm Carla Stevens. Um, if you've ever heard of Bravo TV, I'd like to, I consider myself a Bravo Liberty until I die because Bravo is just fabulous when it comes to, um, you know, docu-series and reality TV and allowing women like myself to be free and expressing their big personalities. But at the end of the day, I'm just like everyone else. I'm a mom living in this world, you know, and um, I just, you know, I took an interest in my children, took an interest in TV, and they came together and allowed me to be on TV as a, a reality uh, personality. And not only that, it was so amazing. I got the opportunity to be on a reality show on the top reality network but I also got the opportunity to be a co-producer in the show. So I'm not just talent. I'm actually a co-producer in the show. And so um, I, I loved everything about it because it enlarged my platform. Uh, I am a wife of 28 years to the same man, may I say that? If <laughs> same guy, 28 years. 
um, who is amazing. We actually own and operate. Get this. People do not believe it when I say my my hustle is I'm in the transportation industry, which is trucking. I operate big rigs. I know I, I don't look like someone that would be involved in the trucking industry. <laughs> right, right, right. But I am and we have been for over 20 something years. In fact, I was working the trucking industry before I got on TV. So but you know, we are we are just I guess to say crazy average family that just loves living life large. And um, I love everything about uh, my life. You know, I get to be a wife, I get to be a mom, I get to be a celebrity, I get to be a friend, I get to I get to hang out with some amazing people, not just uh, celebrities, but just, you know, people that are in my life, I feel extremely, extremely blessed. So hopefully that's enough to make you love me, maybe, possibly. <laughs> but, you know, if not, keep listening and, and maybe you'll hear something that'll strike a chord because there's just so much more to Carla Stevens than, than most people even know. Okay, well, let, let, let's think about this from a, a listener point of view. Many people out there would love to be a celebrity. You know, that's a, a big thing nowadays. People would love to be on TV and they sit down saying, you know, if only I could be on television, you know, if only, if only, if only. Let's, let's maybe start by giving the audience a, maybe a little, bit, a little bit of a lesson. How did you get on TV in the first place? How, how did it come about? What, what, were the, what were the steps? So I'd like to say that my story is unique but it's probably not, but it's very, very rare. So listen when I say this, I am the person who was living the life that was my life. I was living it to the highest level possible, mm -hmm. raising my children, running my business, loving my spouse, and the industry found me. Uh, network executives found me. I, was, I live in a fabulous city and I do have fabulous friends, but I was, you know, hanging out, with some of my friends on the red carpet, didn't know they were already watching me on social media, but uh, someone reached out and said, hey, what's your story? And I told them my story, that I'm this mom, I'm a helicopter mom, I'm doing this and I'm doing that. And they loved the fact that I was working in my child's school, which was a small school, unheard of, and I was raising, raising hundreds of thousands of dollars as this parent teacher president. So they love my natural life. I, I feel blessed because I got recognized and I was selected because of who I am. Most people try to be someone that they are not. And my story is I was blessed to go on TV as myself. Um, and so, you know, there are things that people can do. But in my case, it was just during a time where I lived in a great city where they were looking for personalities and they heard my story and thought it would be fresh and new that Bravo at the time, you know, a lot of the moms that were on there, they didn't necessarily get to show their lives as business women, as wives and women with their children. And I honestly was, I feel privileged that I got to be some of the first women on there who got to show their real true lives and not just the fabulous side of it. So that's my story, but everyone's story is, is different. I think everyone has to find the superstar within themselves. Honestly, before I was recognized on television, my husband and I, we go out to dinner and people would stop him and say, who is your wife? I think I know her. I've seen her. I literally, I carried myself that way. I mean, I outdressed out. I mean, everywhere I went, you would have thought I was a celebrity. So I think that people have to first enjoy their own lives and figure out 
what that means to them and do it to the utmost. And then you can find ways to interject yourself into certain scenes if that's what you really want. And then there's always the traditional route. There are people working hard every day going out networking, auditioning, you know, doing self-tapes right now just to get in the industry. But I think that my story was really, it's a blessing and I feel honored. And it's rare that people meet someone. I met my producers, told my story, and I was on TV in less than seven months. That, that rarely happens because you probably know a lot about development and that could take seven years to develop a show. So my situation was rare, you know? But I do mm -hmm. want to encourage people to be a superstar in your own home. Start where you are, you know, start where you are. Yes, do what you can. And that's, and, that's, you know, that's, a, that's, a, lo that's a lovely thing to say and to think and to do, actually. Be, be, be your best, show your best, live your best in any way. And, you know, may, maybe, maybe, and I would say you maybe had a little bit of luck that that happened as well. Yeah. Um, but, but it could happen to anyone. All right, good. Now, I, the reason that we asked you to come on the show is that I was looking, or the, or the research team were looking for people that had a high profile that could talk about a subject that I care about greatly. And when we found you um, having passion and commitment and taking action, more importantly as well, toward this subject, it was, it was just so important for me to be able to get a chance to sit and talk to you and allow our audience to learn more about exactly what you're doing and how you got into it. So m my journey of trying to understand human trafficking, uh, child slave labor, sex trafficking came when I... When I met a guy at, a, at an event that I go to every Saturday where we work with sustainability goals, and I met a guy called Kailash Satyati. Now, Kailash won the Nobel Peace Prize um, a few years ago, and there's a movie that was made called The Price of Free. And basically, he's now saved 82,000 children from child slave labor over the last 10 years. And he would go in, and, and people don't get this, but... Let me compare it to drug dealing. Drug trafficking is where a drug is produced somewhere in the world. Let's say they take the common one, cocaine. Cocaine is produced in, uh, let's say, Colombia, because that's a famous place for it. It's turned into whatever, however they put it together from the leaves into the powder. They ship it to a certain part of the world. Let's say it goes into Miami. It's then taken from Miami to whoever wants to buy that drug and consume that drug. And once that drug's consumed, it's gone. Big money, massive money, big crime, but that, that's gone. For me, human trafficking is essentially selling people over and over again. And I think what I learned is that we've seen documentaries where developing countries, third world countries would highlight this type of problem. And whilst we'd watch the documentary and say, that's horrific, that's not on, and be shocked by it, typically most people would then turn the TV off, turn the YouTube channel off, kind of brush that feeling under the carpet and then crack on with their lives again the next day. But what people fail to understand is that a lot of this is going on under our noses. It goes on in the poshest parts of London. It goes on in the Hamptons. It goes on in Beverly Hills. It goes on in Connecticut. It goes on in all of the developed countries and all of the wealthiest places, but it's not brought to our attention. 
And that's my ambition. My mission is to make sure everybody understands that this is going on everywhere. Now, you've got involved in it and you've done some great things, which we'll talk about during the course of this show. But what I'd like to learn is how that started for you. Yes. Well, I was actually uh, serving in a church that I was attending and um, there was a it's a little town called Macon. It wasn't far from where I was living and they heard about the work that I was doing. And so they reached out to me about coming because they were seeing a huge problem amongst teenage girls with prostitution. There was so much, it was like infestation of just prostitution. And so they wanted me to come and help them, you know, work with the girls, try to, you know, eliminate this issue. And once I found out about that, my heart was just immediately, I wanted to start um, doing the work, but it became difficult to kind of travel back and forth from where I was. So I started with an organization right where I was living in my church. And we started going into the exotic dance clubs. We started going to the clubs where the strippers were. And our goal was to simply go in there and help the young ladies in there if they wanted to transition into something different or they needed just help being, you know, in that life. You know, this is their their income, that, that's how they were living, you know, but we knew the mental toll, we knew the stress of, of doing that type of work um, that they would need help. So when I started going into those strip clubs and exotic clubs, and sometimes we would walk up and down the strips, I realized that there were many, many girls in there against their own will. I found out that most of the times that we were in there, which is what made it so dangerous, is that there was a pimp or a trafficker sitting right there in the club watching us talk to the girls. And sometimes many of them would say, okay, I can't take this. I can't do that. Or, you know, and some people may not like this. Ultimately, I would end up having to pay the girls just to get time to sit down and talk to them and figure out what was going on. And so when I started to see that, I got curious about it. And so I started reaching out and working and I saw that there were organizations. At the time, it was an organization called Wellspring Living. So I reached out to them and started training with them and found out that this was much more deeper than even what I was seeing in the exotic clubs. That some of the girls don't end up in exotic clubs. They end up in other states, other countries. They end up dead. And, and just to, when I found out at the time, the youngest victim that I got exposed to was nine years old. It just became, why not? You have to do this. I wanted to help, honestly, at the time, children. I was just thinking, I have to help these children, these young girls. It, I didn't hear that much at the time about young boys, and we know now that, that it's boys and girls. But at the time, I thought, I, I want to help these um, young girls. And so everything I did, I became even more compelled. One of the trainings, this is, was like the craziest thing. One of the trainings that I attended was an actual pimp. He was a pimp. And he, tr he trained us by telling us and going into the psyche and giving us the process by which they would break a girl. Because a lot of people want to know, well, why don't they run? Why don't they call? And that moment and him explaining the process about how they took this little girl who was still wearing Mickey Mouse underwear, right? She was that young. And how they broke her to the point where she was afraid that if she made the wrong move, her family would end up dead. All of that just 
I just knew I had to do something. So I started at the time continuing in training. And then I started doing um, everything that I could, awareness, going in and serving in some of the rescue houses, going back out on the streets now with a different attitude, knowing that every, sometimes we have the tendency to think, particularly, and I have to speak for my community, African-American community. Sometimes we think that if a young girl is on the street, she's out there because she wants to be in that light, because she's just this grown little girl trying to be something that she's not. And so, the more I saw how large it was in our community and that my community was acting as if they weren't aware, I knew I had to do something. So that that's kind of how it started for me. You know, I just started, we were going into the exotic clubs to help dancers and to help strippers, you know, with their transition. And then I realized that many of them were not there because they wanted to be, they were being forced to be there. We had Amy Storer from Homeland Security on the show, and Amy was telling us that there are over 500,000 kids every single year sex trafficked in America. That, Five, and that's a... 500,000 kids, of which 75% of them come from broken homes or foster care. When I first heard that number, it was, it was actually incomprehensible to me that I wasn't, you know, if she'd have said to me 5,000, I'd have gone, okay, mm -hmm. 500,000. It was just, and she said to me, in, uh, in the strip clubs, over 80% of the girls in all strip clubs are trafficked. And in pornography, the number's even higher. And so when, when I heard those numbers, it just, it almost, it almost makes, you, makes you think, how could this be so big? But there must be so much money involved in it from the pimp's point of view that, that really it's a, a very profitable business for people that are callous and heartless. Oh, it's... When you try to think about the psyche of the people that that do this, it, it it can if you don't know evil, then you wouldn't understand it. But you know it's evil. But it really can confuse you because it takes more than one person. You have the trafficker, but then you have the buyers. So when you think about it, I don't know how many people think about it the way that I do. But I, when I think about it, and I think about the 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 sex side of it, the psyche and how desensitized we are to sex to the point where some people don't see a problem in buying sex from young people. But it's very, it's very difficult to think about. We walk on this earth with human beings that don't see a problem with having sex with a, a child. And under the guise, and you know that it's wrong because you're not advertising it, you're not posting it on your social media, you know that is wrong, but yet you do it. It makes the world scary. It makes you, as a mom, my son is 20, he'll be 21, one of my sons. And I track him everywhere he goes. People ask me and I tell them, it is as a result of what I've seen in working in, you know, with the sex trafficking and human trafficking. And it is because there's really nowhere to hide. There is no one you should never not think I am safe with because 
it's it's one of those things that it's evil for some people is sexual sicknesses which you know can cause you to be evil and do evil things it's so greediness for those who would take um a young girl or a woman and and have her work and work and never pay her and you live off the riches that she has gathered but she doesn't get a dime um it's just it just takes you to a place where you think how low can we go as human beings and if you're not careful and you're working and you're serving in this industry if you're not careful it can really turn and destroy you you know one of the things that we used to do that i love when i was working and we were going out each month to the uh, strip clubs and to the exotic dance clubs we would debrief so immediately once we finished, we would gather in a room and we debrief. We'll talk about our feelings. We'll talk about what happened. And a lot of times going into those clubs, the women try to be sexual with you because that's all they know. They know if you're talking to me, they feel like you want something from them. So we had to debrief. A lot of us were going in there. You're seeing naked women. You're seeing them having sex in the booth. You're, it's like you're in this sex den with people. And, you know, I'm a mom. And when I first started... I'm a young mom, a young wife, and I'm going in here seeing these things. So we had to debrief. And this is definitely something where even with what you are doing, if you don't debrief and say, there's still good in this world, there's still kindness in this world, it will mess you up. It will have you suspicious of everything and everybody. It will have you thinking, why? What's the purpose? If a child cannot be born in this world and maintain their innocence, then why is there a world? These are questions that I've had to ask myself and I've had to overcome. We have to keep living for the good that is here. We have to keep living for the kindness. Because if we go away, who will fight the evil? Who will fight the evil? Hmm. Hmm. Take me back to when you met the pimp. You obviously learned te techniques, but can you tell me, are they only in it for the money or is there some other kick they get from it? This one in particular, he was different from me because it was money and it was power. The first thing he started off saying is to the parents, you think you own your children, you have power on them. He said, no, I don't. Because I can give them something you can't. I can give them the Prada bag. I can give them the Jordans. It was all about shoes. It was all about, from the moment he started talking, it was about power. And he was telling the parents how they lose their children because they go into power struggles because they don't know how to exert, exhort that power over them. And he was bragging about how they knew how to gain power by the manipulation, by the giftings, by making the kids feel like they're giving them something that their parents never would give them. Not only material things, but love, a special kind of love. So this particular guy, and I'm sure that there are different, you know, characteristics of pimps and traffickers. But this particular guy, it was completely about power and the money. I believe he would have done it if he only made $250 a week because 
of the women that he was able to manipulate and have serving him and serving his friends. And, you know, almost like it was a barter system where if he connected this girl with this friend, that friend owed him a favor. He gained power amongst his peers. So it's a, it's definitely, he had both, but I know that there are different characteristics where it's strictly about the money. In fact, a lot of the younger guys that I've been bumping into and finding that are being arrested, it's about money. They shifted from the drug trafficking, you know, and selling dope to now selling bodies because they know, you know, they can make more money. It used to be the risk wasn't as bad. You know, a drug dealer would get more time than a trafficker. Now they're, you know, they're giving them more time. But I see a lot of the young guys, it's about the hustle and it's about them gaining um, the finances really quick and, and in a hurry. So when you, when you, different. when you look at the, the kids, you see, um, from again, from what I've learned, that most of them are, are the majority are coming from the foster care system, so they're vulnerable. I, I wonder, I wonder where, and maybe you can help me with this. Where where does a pimp start? You know, what, what kind of person becomes a pimp? Is it is it someone in a gang? Is it someone <clears throat> who's been exposed to the foster care system themselves? Is it someone that's been abused maybe when they were younger is there is there any knowledge you have on that <clears throat> and i'm drawing a blank i just i did a panel with an organization who are now doing a study and they're focusing on um pimps and the buyers because they do recognize that a lot of them also come from broken homes and i'm not you know i want to i don't want to interchange it but you know we hear pimp and then we hear traffickers but it, it's honestly it's when you get to the bottom of traffickers and you'll find that many of them have two parents <laughs> and they've had jobs, you know, it, it's the, you know, it's, it, it's, that's what makes this so difficult because when you want to pin down the characteristics, then you find out it's a, a man and his grandmother that have been running the house. So, you know, to narrow that down, they, I do, um, I think it's street grace that they're starting and they're focusing on, you know, information because they believe if we can get to the pimps or we can get to the people who traffic and help deal with their issues, you know, it's a part of the problem, but many are, many do come from backgrounds that they were already criminals before doing other crimes and which makes it easier to switch over to something that just imagine if you're a criminal and you're making money and you find out that there's a way to make more money, but people weren't getting as much time and not, you don't turn on the news every day and find out that there were people arrested for being a pimp or a, a trafficker. Here recently in the States where I am, you know, every three to four months, there's this big bus and they'll, they'll have this trafficking ring, but you know, it's, it's kind of under the radar where it makes it a crime that's, I guess it can entice other criminals to come in. So a lot of them come in as criminal because they figured this is easier. And so in this, in this particular guy's story, he actually was, he was actually sexually abused, this guy that, mm. and I remember him talking about how 
Because in our minds, it's like, if you were abused like that, why would you become this monster and destroy all these other lives? And his story, the way he told it, it was almost as if he was compelled to be that. So there are those stories and there are, you know, the history like that. But then they're just ordinary, regular people who got tired of working their nine to five. And they're so desensitized to the needs of women and children and in this world that it's no problem, you know, because if a family needs to eat, they'll in some places, it's OK to sell your child. It's OK to to make money so the whole family can live. If I can marry her off to get money for us to live, why can't I do this? So different reasons don't make them, you know, necessarily good reasons. There's never a good reason to, to put anyone into slavery, into this type of bondage. But there are many, many excuses. So I don't have a percentage or a number, but this particular guy I will speak for, he his background was you felt a little something for him. And the fact that he had turned his life around and was helping organizations because he actually came to our organization to train. Um, you know, I don't I don't believe that there's that redemption in that. I think that you are redeemed and through a higher power, but the the lives that he destroyed, you know, hopefully he can sleep at night. But in my eyes, it's like, I don't see your redemption in, in that, you know, hmm. but when you think about strip clubs, as an example, we know some statistics around strip clubs. And I, I think to myself about two, two parties, I think about strip club owners. And I think about government because government allows strip clubs to take place. They, they make them legal. They're, they're allowed to exist, whether they're exotic dancers, strip clubs, whatever they may be. They allow that to take place. And then I think about the people that own these establishments. They're not stupid. They know what's going on. Where's their conscience? Well... That's that's the greed in the people without the conscious. And you what you just said, Spencer, what you just brought up has been the number one enemy to this fight. The government, the the people involved, because you would think it would be just as easy as as that, right? The people, you know that they're in there doing this in your club or something about it. The government could regulate. If we find out that this is happening, we shut you down. But they don't because of the money cycle tied into it. You know, people, some people will say and some people won't. But just recently in the news where I am, there is a group of former trafficking victims who were suing a hotel. I actually went to this hotel. I went to this hotel and I saw it firsthand. The girls are standing out there. Their pimps are down the street. And even these girls were even raising their babies that they had while they were on the street at this hotel. Well, a group of those girls now are suing that hotel and that hotel manager claiming they knew they were being trafficked. They knew what was going on in their hotel. And the last I read about it, they allowed them to do it. They were holding them responsible. And I can remember years ago when I would go out there and I would see 
this you knew it wasn't normal who goes to a hotel and a i kid you not spencer and a hundred people are in the parking lot 20 might have been men and the other 80 were women waiting and when i saw that in the news i thought yes because that hotel manager knows that these girls are living here that they're traffickers and pimps are here and um have to look back into it but the last i heard they were allowing them and they held that they said that the hotel owners could be held responsible for what happened to those girls we need to see more of that i did a panel with an amazing um group of women and one of the women she she's over uh what ups does ups has dedicated so much time to this subject and she did a study. She was responsible for a study. And I hate when I can't remember people's names. But she did a study and found out that a lot of the trafficking and a lot of the sex was being bought between 12 and 3 o'clock p.m. So her From challenge... midday and 3 p.m.? Mm-hmm. Oh. She, she did, based on that study and her TED Talk, she was challenging companies to monitor how the computers are being used how the phone lines are being used because a lot of those men were making those deals and set up on the company computers during that time and then they would take their lunch break. So she challenged companies to say that if we found out that you used it for this or you bought sex or whatever on your in those working hours that they would no longer have a job. And so she it was it's a profound study. Hopefully I can look it up and tell you about. It. I was sitting there thinking, yeah, they're the ones. That's why I said it is a system. It is a cycle. They're, the buyers, to me, are culpable. The buyers, if we can get to the buyers and have them held accountable. So she's the going at the... They're called the Johns, yeah? The Johns? They're called Johns? The Johns, yes, the yeah. Johns. That's it. The Johns. And so, in fact, I think it's, she promoted something called the Johns Act where each company... You know, and you know, companies, if you work for a company, they send out those disclaimers and say, you know, this is private information. You know, they listen and you know, they look at your emails. So you, you easily know who's setting up sex on doing their lunch hours. And it's just so much more. And to her, it was just shocking that that's when the majority of the sex was being bought in these young girls. So, and, but think about it, they're businessmen. And so during the day, you get a lunch break. A lot of times, you know, afterwards, you're either in a meeting or you're going home. So it made sense to me. But if we could get something going against the, the buyers, if we can go hard after the traffickers and the pimps, and it, I don't know if it would completely stop it, but it would make it harder. And I think it would lessen um, the amount of people and, you know, children that are being sold for sex so and it, like everything else if there's no demand you won't need a supply mm, it's supply and demand the stop trafficking mission funding this this organization that you've created and founded first first of all before i even learn about it well done you for doing something constructive and positive just sincerely uh, tell me all about it Stop Trafficking Mission Funding actually is an initiative where I have been, you know, serving in this area for many years and 
as I said before, if you don't debrief, it can become overwhelming. So as time progressive, I wanted to find ways to maximize what I do and stop trafficking mission funding at this point in my life where I am was birthed so I can maximize my reach at the time. And it was created because I realized that once we got the victims off the street and they became survivors, that there was very limited access for them to become overcomers. Uh, I met an organization that taught me that 85% of the survivors of trafficking or they will be re-victimized. They will be re-victimized because they don't have the support and the help. And um, that just struck a chord. And during the uh, original pandemic, let me just say the original pandemic, the first, so many organizations kept reaching out to me, Carla, because they, they know my background in fundraising. They know what I did when I worked early on in the organization. Before the, at that time, the president gave out the big grants, they had no money. They knew that the traffickers were winning because they had their victims trapped now. They couldn't leave. They could, couldn't go anywhere. So they needed money. So I had at least two a week reaching out to me. And it, I felt so overwhelmed and I was like, I need to do something. So I said, I'm going to do what I know to do and that's fundraise. And I'm going to use things I love and people I love to raise money to help these organizations. So I started Stop Trafficking Mission funding to fundraise and to raise even more awareness um, to help these organizations. So what I wanted to do was connect what I love, which is mothering, which is being a wife and, you know, TV, film and all of that. So I've been, and actually I, I'm still just getting started. I started just using um, what I love, like t-shirts, you know, I would sell t-shirts. I would auction off art, anything that I could do to raise money and to, uh, I would select an organization. I picked one a month. So all the money that was raised in 30 days would go to that organization. Then I would go to the next and to the next. And then, you know, thank goodness, um, at that time, the government gave out grants to help, you know, nonprofits and a lot of them got the money. So it slowed down a little bit the ask. And my heart just started going towards this organization um, called Safe House Project because they, they focused on the rescue and then they focused on making sure that those women children and, and, you know, men and boys were not re-victimized. And so I started working with them and survivors were coming to me directly. There's this one survivor that I really, I was hesitant because so many people talk about the work it takes to work with a survivor and, you know, rehabilitating. I was very hesitant because I raise money. I've spoke on platforms. I've, you know, held events. But to actually have one-on-one -on -one with a survivor, it scared me because I thought I'm not trauma trained. How do I help her with her trauma? And I tell people today that she blessed me more than I have done anything for her. Her life, her energy, her struggle to see her surviving has changed me. So she became my very first survivor spotlight. So I used Stop Trafficking Mission funding to spotlight survivors. And in her case, she had started a business um, 
for uh, she loved animals. So she started a business with puppy products and stuff. So I used Stop Trafficking Mission Funding to promote her business and to connect her with people that I know who could help her. And she's gotten some great opportunities, you know, with her business. So, um, and that, that, that's how it was born. I just always have this desire to help, but sometimes we, in this world today, you know, we can be overwhelmed. It, you know, with the hunger crisis, with the, the racism crisis, everything that was happening, everyone was asking for money. Everyone needed help. And so, we have to find a way to help how we can. And for me, stop trafficking mission funding was a way for me to say yes instead of no, is I have to find a way I can help. And maybe I can't do what everyone else is doing, or maybe I can't go where everyone else is going, but this is what I can do. And I always tell people and I encourage people, find what you can do. If you can make a post and post statistics, or if you can repost a picture of a missing child, that's something you can do to help. And so for me, with my platform and my reach, I started Stop Trafficking Mission Funding to be a resource for those organizations. Um, I, we've, I've actually helped. I get calls and say, hey, we just rescued five girls and we need plane tickets. I've been able to give finances for that. Girls who come with their babies and you know, they need, they want to give them this welcome basket. So, you know, nothing's too small and nothing's too large. And Stop Trafficking Mission for me allows me to do that. When people buy their shirts, 100%, I don't keep any of the profit. In fact, I put all the money in. I didn't have any grants or anything, any support. I put all the money in to get all the products. But I, I use 100% of the profit to support um, these organizations because it it's hard it's hard to rescue, but it's even harder to restore. It's like you need finances. So there's, 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 in my mind, there's three types of people. There's the people that see it and ignore it. There's the people that get exposed in the way that you did. And it, it, whether it struck a chord, that's the term you used, it really hit home. It became very real when you were exposed to it. Like it became frighteningly real, which compelled you to take action. And yet there's this other group of people, which is the majority that will <laughs> listen to this and they'll go, oh man, that's really, that's, that sucks, you know, that's really bad. I'd, I'd like to be able to help, but you know, where would I even start? So re regardless of your organization, because that's one of them, if if somebody said to you, where do I start? How can I get involved? What can I do? What difference can I make? If you were to give three tips, three pieces of advice, what would you, what would you tell people to do? What I actually tell people to do is start where you are, search your community, because now there are more, far more communities than when I started that have initiatives going right there local. Because sometimes people just want to go, they feel like if I'm not touching the big thing or if I'm not seeing no, start right where you are, check your local community, see if there's a local organization that you can help out with by volunteering your time or making donations or even your local law enforcement. Because oftentimes the real organizations, they're connected and they work with their um, law enforcement agency and you can contact them and there may be people that they are uh, working with. So I always tell them to start local. Then secondly, um, Homeland Security, you mentioned them. There are several trainings out there. There's so, several initiatives that they have. You could go online, right? 
and you can sign up to be a part of what they are doing. You can get trained and actually their organizations connected to them that you can look in your city and see who in your city or what organization may be doing um, the work of uh, human trafficking or, you know, fighting against human trafficking. And honestly, there are tons of religious organizations that fight this cause every single day. You'll be surprised. So start where you are locally, then look um, to the federal to see who, who they are connected with. And um, you can go from there. I tell people that all the time. And then thirdly, I don't, don't limit what it is you think you can do because every little bit helps. But I do tell people, if you don't go in, if you don't go in with the mindset that I am going to do something, you will do nothing. So you have to go in with a mindset that I am going to do something. And that something could be, like I said, every month I'm going to post something about awareness. Every month I'm going to repost a missing child. Every month, oh, I forgot. This is one of the biggest things that in my circles or that I would love someone to hear here. Find a single parent and find a way to help. Because honestly, those kids are the most vulnerable because oftentimes they're being left at home. They don't have help. They're walking to places by themselves. So if you can, so that would be my fourth thing. If there's a single parent in your life, single mom, single dad, and they have children. And if you have a relationship, cause you know, people are funny about strangers, but if you have a relationship with them, see if there's something you can do because at the end of the day, you are now helping to prevent that child from becoming a victim. So if I could pay for transportation for that child, or if I could, if I'm close enough, if I could take two days out of the week to be the one to pick the child up after school because mom has to work, um, or on the weekends, find a way, offer some type of transportation service, offer some type of sitting services. If you can do four hours a month like that for a single person, you are 100% helping to stop a potential victim for, of to human trafficking. Carla, thank you. Genuinely, thank you for what you do. You do so much good and you make a difference and you take action and I feel that. So I mean it. Thank you sincerely. It's very good that you're doing stuff like that. Okay, yeah. let's let's maybe just move on to something a little bit lighter to finish. Yes, <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs> so what's in the works for you where we can see you coming up over the course of the next few months, few years? What's, what's in the works? So I've actually, I've been working on um, a few behind the scenes shows where I'm actually a producer. And so I've been doing the behind the scenes stuff. I've been working on a Christmas movie. So a couple of people are trying to talk me into going back in front of the cameras. I'm not opposed to that. Um, so I, I, I'm very excited about my projects that I'm working on. I've actually been asked to participate and I'm waiting to hear back. There's someone, they're actually doing a scripted series about human trafficking and they want me to be a part of that. So I don't have all the details. I'm still working it out. So hopefully that would be my desire to be. But, but, you, but, but you've obviously told them that you and I are going to be in that though. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I can't look when they call back. I can now because honestly, <laughs> if I had to say what's my biggest desire right now is to to do that, to do something um, along the lines of what they're doing, which is one of the reasons why I told them yes because I wanted to work on a project myself um, that would expose and continue to cause awareness towards the issue of human trafficking. And so when they reached out, I thought, yes, I will tell their stories. Yes, I would tell their stories. So I'm excited about that. So hopefully that will be the first thing you'll see me on back on TV doing and, and doing that. But um, for the most part, really still working behind the scenes. I actually, I have a did film um, a little, I don't know if it's a little short that has to do with human trafficking. So I've been doing a lot of that lately, but primarily just, I've been working behind the scenes, writing uh, more shows. So I'm excited about that. If um, with the, the filming of the show that we're making, if there was the opportunity to come and spend a bit of time with you and have you on the show with us and, and maybe go into the areas that you go into, would you be happy to accept that? Of course. Yes, Spencer. I would, I, that's, that's my focus now. So that would be, those are my yes projects. Those are, I have to think very little about those projects. Okay. Excellent. Stuff. I really Good. believe that that's my area. You know how I did stop trafficking mission funding. Mm-hmm. My, I feel like that's, I can use me to cause more exposure in front of the camera and speak yeah. out. And so all of that would just line up with what I want to do. So of course, yes. And missions and values are very aligned. Carla, thank you so much for coming to join us on the show today. It's been an absolute joy to have you on. I know we went into some very passionate subjects for both of us, but it's really, really important that people understand this. I agree. And thank you so much for having me, Spencer. I'm glad that this worked out. And I just, I want to say to you, thank you. Because Spencer, you are rare. You are rare. And to have men who fight for this issue means, I'm about to get teary-eyed, it means a lot. Everywhere I go and all the things that we do, to see the, the men fighting, it means the world because oftentimes they're just seen as the perpetrators. They are seen as the ones causing the hurt. But to have someone such as yourself who is now a facilitator of healing and hope means the world. So congratulations to you and thank you for your work and continue to be the rare gem that you are. I sometimes wonder where to start when I get to the end of an episode and think about the impact that what I've just heard over the course of the last 30 minutes, one hour, whatever it is, um, has on me. What I like about Carla, she's a public figure. She doesn't just talk about it. She goes out and gets involved. She's prepared to put herself into really uncomfortable positions to give herself more understanding and awareness. She's compassionate. She's taking action, which like everything in life, if you take action, it's going to get you somewhere. And we can see that Carla's really making that happen. What a, what a joy to talk to somebody like that, getting stuck in, getting involved, giving their best, and fighting for what's right. 
And just imagine if all of us just did that a bit more, how much better the world could be. If you're listening to this episode on iTunes, please, 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 please give me a five-star rating. You've no idea what it means to me. It only takes a couple of seconds. I'd really appreciate it if you did. And if you're not and you're listening on any other podcast app, give us a follow, give us a like, give us some feedback, engagement, positive or negative. I don't mind. I just want you to engage so that more people can see this show. I'll see you next time.